This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. For the past few years, I've had the privilege to work on Insatiable and have had the chance to get to know the woman behind it, the creator, showrunner, and writer, Lauren Gussis. And I'm so excited that you all get to hear our conversation today because she's brilliant and so, so special. She's written for shows like Dexter and E-Ring, but Insatiable is her masterpiece. And it's back on Netflix for its second season. So I hope you'll watch after you listen to this episode. Enjoy! I'm Lauren Gussis, and I'm the creator and showrunner of Netflix's Insatiable. Sorry, not sorry. I'm Patty Bladell, and I'm not your typical pageant queen. There are things about me that I wish that I could change, but I can't. She's sort of the most amazing girl I've ever met. Yeah, sounds horrible. You're a beauty queen with a hot boyfriend. It doesn't matter what I look like. My life is a total mess. I am a murder suspect, okay? What? Yeah. Did you do it? No! Of course I didn't. For me, it was important to do it as a comedy, but also it needs to be rooted in real human emotion. That's the thing that's tricky about the show, because there are moments of broad comedy and also moments where you cry. God, could you be more I've cried watching the show, and I hope the audience will cry, too. So much about writing is about being isolated. You know, for me, it wasn't. For me, that's the reason I decided to be a TV writer, was because I wanted to be around other people. I wanted to be in a room. Like, I love the writer's room. I love it. I love bouncing ideas off of other people and being collaborative and the fun of it. Um... Because when I, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but when I, I started, I was like working on my high school sketch comedy tel- uh, stage show. It was like sketch on stage mm, that was written amazing. for and produced by and directed by students. And so that's when I fell in love with the writing part of it. I mean, I'd always been a writer. Like I used to. Um, yeah. Did you do? Because my kids, even before they could read, they would make up stories. Right. Like, I don't know if I'm sure we're around the same age. Yeah. Disney used to do books on tape. Yes. And before they figured out how to not make them recordable. You could record your own world of sounds on the back of the Disney books. Um, So cool. Why don't they do that anymore? I don't know. You need to do a little USB port. Yeah. And so I used to record stories like under the table when my parents would have dinner parties. I would just sit under the table and tell stories about whatever. It's amazing. Um, So yeah, I always knew that was the thing, but I also am the daughter of a CPA. And so practically speaking, like I knew I didn't want to be a novelist because I didn't think there was any money in in it. Um, I have social anxiety. And so journalism was not my thing. I couldn't just go up and ask strangers questions. And I didn't think that there was any money in playwriting unless you're like a superstar. And Mm -hmm. far be it for me to think that one day I would, you know, be that next person. And that's always something you can do. Like, I believe that you'll write a play at some point in your life. Yeah, maybe. Um, So I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then I took the P-A-C-T's, you know, where they make you fill out this, like when you're 17, ready to go to college, and they make you fill out this form that says your interests. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I saw a TV slash film writer. And growing up in Chicago, I didn't know that was even an option. Right. And I saw it. And it was like it jumped out at me in 3D. And I filled in that little circle with my number two pencil. And I never looked back. You just knew. I knew. So what is that? Like 16 P-A-C-T's? 17. 17. Yeah. Wow. So I had the bug. I just didn't know what to do with it. And, and so do you that. remember the first thing that you ever wrote, like the first script you ever wrote? Yeah. Uh, 
I'm trying to think which came first. I, I wrote a play, I think, in high school. I wrote sketches in high mm-hmm. school for sure. It was like a the first sketch I ever wrote. My best girlfriend from high school since we were nine, um, her sister called and said, listen, we need to write an audition sketch and I know that you'd be good at it. Come over and help. And like overnight, we turned around this parody of Billy Joel's for the longest time and we did an original act for this thing and we got in and that was like the end. Like, you know, on some level, like she she has credit for my entire career because I wouldn't have so known incredible. that that's what I wanted to do. So shout out to Joey Jacobson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I um, thank you. Uh, but yeah, I think I wrote a, I wrote a, a play in high school about a camping trip that I went on that my, uh, my mentor in high school was like, this isn't, the stakes aren't high enough because the, they were low stakes because we were in high school. I didn't get it, but he let me write interstitials for, he had directed a, a version of witness for the prosecution and he wanted to update it. So they had like screens and he had me write the interstitials. It was meant to be like, um, kind of reflective of what was going on in the OJ trial. Cause that was happening right. at that time. Um, so he let me do that. And then, you know, I went to college and I didn't get into the creative writing program as it turns out. Are you kidding? Um, okay. So what did you study? And first of all, what did your parents think? Did you tell them at 16 that this is they what knew. you decided? I mean, there was like no, you know, my mom wanted to find a way for me to stay in Chicago for her. It was not about like, do something more practical. Right. It well, was that's good. Don't leave. Cause I'm the only child of a Jewish mother. So she didn't want me to leave. Which is probably part of the reason I ended up going to Northwestern, you know, <laughs> yeah. close to home. Yeah. Um, but they were very encouraging. They just wanted to make sure I had, I, I don't know if it was ever like a fallback plan. They were like, why can't you work for Oprah? I'm like, because that's not, <laughs> I'm not saying that's not creative in a disparaging way. It's just like not writing a television. It's not the same thing. You know what I mean? Also, how do I meet Oprah, mom? Right. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Yeah. So good. Although crazier things have happened. And I've met your mother. I can see you're totally doing that. So, and then they were like, how can you move to LA without a job? You know, so it was, it were the practical concerns that, but never a matter of like, oh, that's kind of like becoming a professional basketball player. Like nobody gets to do this. Why, why would you think you get to? They never did that to me. They were like, yes, a hundred percent. We believe in you. Let's figure it out. Yeah. That's so great. So that's amazing. Although I, (laughs) I do feel like it took my mom a while to get to the place where she got that I actually had done it. Like, cause you know, I was on Dexter for eight years. I got nominated for Emmys, like all this stuff. And it took somebody at the gym being like, that show's a really big deal for her to be like, you know, your show's a really big deal. And I'm like, yeah, mom, I yeah, know. I, yeah. I've I know. been telling you that. I know. Oh, but I, you know, God but she her. was used to the, the having to support yeah. your dreams. Yeah. No, she was, they, right? they both. So she was still in that mode probably of like, I have to help her yeah. achieve what she wants to achieve. Yeah. And yeah. once we achieve it, I don't know that they, that hope I don't for think, us goes away. Yeah. I don't think we realize when we achieve it either, by the way. So I understand yeah. that completely. Like you get to a place where you're like, oh, somebody tell nine-year-old me. Right. That that's and- what I'm doing right now. And do you think it's just part of human nature to want more once we already have achieved that? I mean, there's a reason I wrote a show called Insatiable. Like right. that, <laughs> right. the, the bottomless right. pit of right. more. So what it, did you study in college? I, I studied radio, television, and film. But the Edwards Western, there's a specific creative writing for the media program, which was like part of the reason I went there. And I didn't get in. What? And I know why I didn't get in, by the way, which what? is really interesting. Because when I went to school, I kind of just wanted to make people laugh. Like, that's what I wanted my writing to be about. I mean, I was a sketch writer. And so I went into my interview and they were like, what do you feel like you want to have? What, what do you feel like you have to say to the world? And I kind of gave this very dumb 18 year old answer about not wanting to be pedantic and not, you know, that's not my job. My job is to, I just want to entertain people. I want to make them laugh. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but I, usually my intuition is pretty good. I felt like um, they felt like I didn't have anything to say. And I think I did and didn't know what it was yet, you know? And then somewhere in the middle of college, I so... But isn't that what college is for, is to sort of nurture whatever it is the student needs to... Maybe, but also I hadn't dug deep enough yet. I get it. I mean, you know, to their... Whatever it is, it is. Two years later, the person who rejected me from the program after reading a script, pulled me aside and said she made a mistake, which was lovely. <laughs> but also it was great for me in terms of rejection. Right. Because things, not in an ego way, just in a factual way, school was easy for me mostly. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first thing that wasn't easy. And it made me look at how bad do you want this? And are you willing to show up and not quit even when someone says no? And the answer to that was like, for this thing, yeah. 
It's so important to not lose yourself in that rejection. To it's not- still hard, but I mean, it was a really good lesson. And then I had to find a way around it. I found a workaround. You know, I did a bunch of independent studies and I wrote and directed plays So there. how did you so. end up on Dexter? Which, by the way, I love that show so much. You know why? It was the first show that I fully understood and loved this idea of the anti-hero. Yeah. The, yeah. the guy that you should not love, but uh-huh. for some reason you love him so much. It's because he is the, he's kind of the epitome of the other, right? And right. I think we all feel othered at yeah. certain points yeah. in our life. And, and there's this delicious, shameful quality of identifying with Dexter where you're like, wait, he's a horrible person. Yeah. Why do I identify with so much of what he's feeling? And also it's this weird wish fulfillment of like, I think... Most people have experienced homicidal rage. Oh, for sure. And so, and because they quote unquote deserve it, the idea of getting to act that thing out within the boundaries of there's a code and it's okay. It's super not okay, but it, it, it kind of forced our audience and ourselves to look at the places like the shadow self, which is so much of what Insatiable is about. It's about the shadow self. Right. That I eventually, you know, to the point of what do you have to say? Like, the idea of othering has become my brand, the idea of identity. You know, people used to not understand why I w- was writing on Dexter and also obsessed with telling high school stories. Yeah. And really it's because it's about identity and feeling othered and feeling apart from and really that being a human experience. And also I feel like that that experience in high school sort of sets the foundation for how you relate to so much in sure. your life. And just the idea of, you know, the shadow, like that, that thing that no one wants to talk about, that is actually the thing that makes us human and bonds us together. That's my favorite topic of conversation. Like the second somebody tells me a thing that they haven't told anybody else, it's like my favorite moment always. The darkness of, yeah. of the light, right? Yeah. And it's... Well, because that, that's the cracks. The cracks are where the light gets to come in. Proud of you for coming, bro. I know you hate funerals. How you holding up? I'm managing. No, I'm not. Keeping my face pinched in sorrow for two hours straight's a real chore. I like to pretend I'm alone. Completely alone. Maybe post-apocalypse or plague. Whatever. No one left to act normal for. No need to hide who I really am. It would be... Freeing. Stop grinning like a fucking psycho and get back to work. Was it hard to write a show that dark? Dexter? Yeah. Like, did you go through... Because I know when I'm yeah. when i on, on set and I have to, mm-hmm. like, cry a lot or, you know, I did the show Mistresses, which was not, you know, no great deep show, but there was a divorce storyline and I was going to work every day and I was having to do these, like, mm-hmm. super emotional scenes. Your body doesn't know any different. Right. So for you, was it hard to tap into the darkness? Was it triggering at all? You know, was it weirdly, therapeutic? Weirdly, Dexter wasn't triggering to me for a few reasons. One, uh, it was a dark comedy, at least in the beginning. The first four seasons of that show were a dark comedy. That's why I fell in love with it. When I saw the pilot, I was like, oh my God, I have to get on the show. Because I had zero interest in writing on a show about a serial killer. Like, it just wasn't, Yeah, it, I wasn't someone who was obsessed with serial, like, I, there were people on staff who were, like, obsessed with serial killers and sociopathy yeah, yeah. and all of those stories. That wasn't my, now I am, but it wasn't my thing at the time. But I saw it and I was surprised at how, how it was cut, how the music was. Like, I laughed a lot in that mm-hmm, pilot and mm-hmm. I couldn't believe, I'd never seen anything like that on TV. And that's why I became obsessed with wanting to work on it. And then the character of Deb, I felt like she was me except a cop. And like her, she had a filthy mouth and she was insecure and all the things. And so that's kind of how I pitched myself on the show. Um, I went in and sat down. I was a good amount younger than everyone else on that staff. And it was like know, how only, old were you? 27. You, oh, God. Um, and I went in and, you know, to my manager's credit, he said, you know that you have this connection to this Deb character. That's how you should sell yourself. And so I kind of went in and said, like, I get her. I get her. I get her filthy mouth. I get her perspective. I understand her relationship with Dexter. Um and I think the thing that need the direction that needs to move is that right now she's disempowered because she needs him to solve her problems for her. That's how it reads. But really, I understand what's going on is that she knows she's her best self around him. Mm-hmm. He he brings out the best in her. And the second you let her know that information, she stops being needy and annoying and she starts being empowered. And that's her biggest ally. And I think that's why I got the job. That's amazing. And also I got to then introduce the word douche into her vocabulary, which was great. Cute. (laughs) Um, It became a big part of the show. Yeah. (laughs) 
Listen, I want to apologize for being such a douche the other night. No need. We're all allowed to be the occasional douche. Thanks. I'm sure you wouldn't do anything like that. What are you talking about? Doing like what? Like, try to sleep your way to the top. You douche. I shouldn't have even said anything, and I'm sure that thought would never even occur to anyone else. Double douche. How did you get a manager? He, at the time, he was my agent. He was my first agent. Um, and how did you get an agent? I didn't get an agent until I got my first job. Um, and my old boss. So you were just a, a go-getter. Yeah, I, I worked on, I was a writer's assistant for a long time, and I kind of was very fortunate in that I got taken under a lot of big wings. Like, mm. more than one. Like, I could name drop, I just don't really. But I can if you want me to. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of people who went on in, in tiny writer's rooms that were not on successful shows. Right. But people who went on to be wildly successful, that kind of believed in me and taught me to pitch in the room. And so my by the time I had worked on two shows... There were five people who had projects in development and they had all read my spec and they all were like at least entertaining the idea of hiring me and none of their shows went. Describe what a spec is for my listeners. Yeah. Uh, I had written um, an episode of Six Feet Under that because at the time, I mean, every five or so years, the opinion about this changes about whether you want to have an original pilot or whether you want to write an episode of a series that's already on the air that people have watched so that you can demonstrate your ability to write in somebody else's voice. Mm. I think both things are important, um, but at the time it was you have to write a great spec. And so I wrote a Six Feet Under that was, you know, funny and dirty and it, I guess, got some attention. I mean, at least got the attention of other writers. It was mm. interesting. Agents didn't love it. They didn't really get it, but other writers were really taken with it. And so that's why I didn't have an agent, but I have a lot of writers who kind of were like, if we get the chance, 100%. And also they had worked with me as a writer's assistant in the room right. and I had developed a pitching skill set because they were encouraging of me and they taught me how to know when was the right time to say an idea. Like I learned to keep quiet um, and keep track of my own ideas of what I would pitch in my head mm. when there was a story problem. And then when there was a lull and people got stuck, like there was nothing to lose because they weren't getting anywhere anyway. Like it wasn't intrusive. Right. It was right. just like, hey, would it be okay? I think I have a thought. Oh, that's really cool. Would it be okay if I shared? And yeah, because said, you never think about that part of what you do is that like taking that moment of, okay, I'm I'm going to pitch this right now. Right, because as the it's, assistant, that's not your job. Your right. job is to take copious notes and right. I'm blessed with perfect oral recall. So I was really good at that part. And I think that's the thing too, is like you have to be good at the job that you're actually assigned to first. Yeah, of course. Right. So I took great notes. I have a weird skill for it. And I could also process the information, not just like writing down verbatim everything people said, but processing it into what could be edible, like that you could understand and digest what had happened that day. So by the end of the day, they had a little bit of an outline of what they had worked on. And I think because I was pretty good at my job, they were more willing to listen and help me. Wow. I kind of made myself indispensable. Yeah. That's the thing that everybody Smart. tells you, yeah. just like make yourself indispensable. Right. And so I waited until they were stuck. And then I said the thing I thought. And two things happened. One, they liked it. And it might not have been the right idea, but it was in the right arena. And so they kept asking. And I just made sure that I always had something to say. And at a certain point, when you start batting like 80%, they let you say whatever you want all the time. Yeah. And so I had a few years of that, um, which was great. And then they also would say, here's why that doesn't work. So I would learn to hone that ability. So by the time I got to be a staff writer, my pitching skills were above what a staff writer, because mm -hmm. you know the rookie mistake is staff writers who talk all the time. And I knew not to do that, and I learned how to navigate the dynamics of a room. It was this my work on the page that needed more work. But, you know, I was told early on in my career, and I still I tell younger writers this now, there's three things involved in being in a writer's room, and you really only need two of those skills to get hired, and the third one is developable. You, are, you need to be – here are the three things. You need to be someone who people want to be around for eight hours a day. Right. You need to be someone who is great in the room. And you need to be someone who's great on the page. You only need two of the three. Mm -hmm. And whatever the third thing is, you can work on. So I was someone who people wanted to be around for eight hours a day, and I was great in the room. And then I took my time working on shows to craft my craft. How blessed were you to have that? I don't know if you're the mentors. Would you yeah. consider oh my God. the people Ma you worked for mentors? 100%. Melissa Rosenberg is a badass. And she, 
she kicked my ass. And it was terrifying because she, you know, a lot of people read my spec and were like, this is great. And then she read it and she was like, yeah, this is a page one. You have to start over. And I went back to my apartment and I cried for two days and then I did it. And that was the thing that got me on my work because she was willing to be honest. How important is it for women to have other women to look up to? It's super important. I will say I had a lot of men who, t- I mean, Ken Biller, who's a dude, gave me my first writer's job. He's the one who staffed me on E-Ring. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first writer's job because they he needed a character writer and he had learned from being in a room with me that that's what I was. But that was wildly uncomfortable because it was a show about the Pentagon. And like, I'm not a procedural guy, you know? So I went in not only as the youngest person but in the room. But what an experience. But, but I was the person who did the thing that nobody did. So I felt so so outside. right. And I just had to like be like be there and know like, okay, I don't know what they're doing. It's my job to shut up and learn and contribute where I can and ask a lot of questions. Um, and that's what I did. And then I the Dex the, we knew we were not gonna get renewed and the Dexter pilot came in and we all watched it together at lunch because that's when DVDs were still a thing. Yeah. And I fell in love with it and I called my agent at the time and I'm like, I have to get an interview for this. He said, You already have one. I just called them. Oh. Um, and the day that E-Ring ended, Dexter started. It was like I went to E-Ring in the morning and Dexter in the afternoon. It was the biggest blessing of my life. It was amazing. I don't know that I knew that you had that much of a comedy background or, mm-hmm. or that that was the the first impetus when you That's were That's what I wanted to do. Writing. Eddie told me not to, and so I wrote a Six Feet Under, but the, now I circled back. There's a rhythm to your writing, mm-hmm. even in the serious moments, even in the, in the most serious scenes that mm-hmm. we've ever shot that I've yeah. ever said your dialogue there is a rhythm that I feel like only a comedy writer could actually so it's the perfect it's the perfect balance yeah it's what I always wanted but I think comedy changed I think at the time when I was you know 25 or whatever the comedy comedy and drama hadn't merged so much mm-hmm. and so right if you were wanting to tell a story with so much heart it that was the that was the wrong medium you know yeah um and you know, Six Feet Under was funny and Dexter was funny. And so I kind of honed my skills there. And then when I got my, when I got the opportunity to write Insatiable, I kind of stealth made it a comedy because it was a one hour show. But, it, but you know, Ryan Murphy, who I also worked with, like he kind of changed the landscape of what made a comedy and what made a drama. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of that was because single cam became so popular. Single cam was popular when I was trying. When you were trying. Yeah. It just, it was the length of the show. It was like you didn't have enough space to really tell a heartfelt story. And now, you know, Ryan Murphy decided that Glee could be a comedy and it changed everything. You know, Glee was an hour and it was a comedy. So that was amazing. And then I worked with him. You know, I did a pilot for HBO with him and I learned so much in that year and a half that I took it to Insatiable when I got to be there. I mean, he so influenced my pacing. Yeah, because my well, pacing was slower, and um, when we were working together, you know, we did this pilot, and then we had a room where we wrote additional scripts. And he walked into the room, and he saw what we had done for episode two and episode three, and he's like, "You can do the entire thing without episode two. And I was heartbroken. I was like, "This is," but there's so much here. Like, how do you? And he pulled it out, and it totally worked. Yeah, and and from that that moment forward, I was like, "Oh, I want stories to chew the furniture," and like. Hence the birth of the fever dream that is insatiable. Ooh, subscription boxes are so fun and they make things easy. Get this, there's now a subscription box for kids that's fun and educational. Kids are the future, so it's our job to prepare them and empower them to be creative, confident, and fearless in all their endeavors. KiwiCo's innovative projects can help do just that. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning fun. They have seven lines to choose from for kids of all all ages, and you get a new box each month. My kids get so excited to open theirs and find out what's inside. What's included in the box? All the supplies for that month's project. Details, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that month's theme. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your children to be anything they want to be. There's no commitment you can cancel anytime. Monthly options start at sixteen ninety five a month, including shipping. 
For my listeners, go to KiwiCo.com slash Alyssa to get your first month free. Every day counts when it comes to making a difference. So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. If you're going to eat meat, quality really matters. But there's more to it than just texture and taste. For me, it's also important to eat humanely raised meat. It's better for me, the animal, and the environment. But it can be hard to find 100% grass-fed beef or free-range organic chicken at the grocery store. And if you can find it, it's often expensive, and there's a limited selection. And that's why I like ButcherBox. They believe that everyone deserves high-quality, humanely sourced meat. Basically, it just shows up at your door, so you'll never be without something to cook for dinner. And if you're getting stressed about cooking Thanksgiving dinner, don't be. ButcherBox has got you covered. Every month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meats right to your home. And it's all free of antibiotics and added hormones. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen, so it stays that way. You can customize your box or choose one of theirs, but either way, you get to pick exactly what you want. ButcherBox is the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat, and it only costs around $6 per meal. Wow. And with Thanksgiving right around the corner, now is the perfect time to give ButcherBox a try. Sign up today and get a free turkey, plus $20 off your first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash Alyssa or enter promo code Alyssa at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash Alyssa or enter promo code Alyssa at checkout for a free turkey and $20 off your first box. So first of all, let's talk about how you came up with Insatiable. What was the what uh, was the inspiration? <laughs> I was waiting to see if my pilot at HBO was going to get picked up. And my agent at the time, who has since quit agenting, God bless her, I love her and wish she would go back. Um, <laughs> she said, listen, we have this article, C- CBS Productions uh, has the rights to this article and they want you to take a look at it. And it was called The Pageant King of Alabama. And it was bill alverson's story and bill alverson is the inspiration for bob and uh i read the article and he was so larger than life that i kind of completely fell in love with the character Mm. he he was so tough love he was so inappropriate which is my favorite thing always but also he was like fashion 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 prada 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 um pageants 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 i teach young women to be who they are my wife and kids and i was like oh my God, I teach young women to be who they are, my wife and kids. Like there is something going on here with this person that is not entirely authentic to who he is. Mm. You could tell that just from reading the article? Yes, because like also I have BIDAR, like I have it, you know, because I am bisexual. And so I saw this story in this guy that I'm like, oh, he's saying he's all about authenticity and there's something else going oh, on so here. so interesting. So interesting. And so... Because, you know, that's that's what I built my brand of writing on was about identity and authenticity. And, and I had to have my own journey with that. Right. Right. And so I called up the executive at CBS and I was like, I love this so much. Um, is he gay? And she said, he is, but don't talk to him about it. <laughs> and so I was like, why? She's like, because he's not fully out yet and he lives in the South and it's a whole thing. And so we got on the phone to be like, can it does he want Lauren to write his story? And I completely forgot that there were other people on the phone. Cause at that time in my career, I wasn't really, I was out, but you have to out yourself constantly when you're bisexual. Cause I had a, I have a husband. I, you know what yeah, I mean? It's exactly. Like, it's, it's not a thing. Like I have this heterosexual cloaking device. Right. And so, <laughs> and so, and there were people who were producers on the show who I'd worked with when I was 23, like at the agency, I was an assistant and they knew me. At, Amazing. Right. So I'm on the phone. I completely forget there are people on the phone. And I start talking about my pilot with Ryan Murphy and how it's about a couple who dates women and um, that it's from my own experience because I'm bisexual. And I forget that they're that, like, not only am I sharing this with someone inappropriately on a first phone call, right. but also there are people who don't know this on the right, call. Right. And he immediately starts talking to me about like, oh, well, you know, I just came out of the closet and, and you know, I'm dating this guy and my wife and blah, blah. blah. And I, I'm like, oh, I so get it. This is so much about your story. 
you know, and he's like, right, but the character can't be gay right away. And I'm like, whatever makes you feel comfortable, but this has to be a part of his coming to terms with, if I'm going to help you be the most you you can be, that character has to become the most him he can be in the first season. That's so Like, brilliant. it has to be a story about coming out, because I think that coming out is not just about your sexuality. I think coming out is about coming into one's own. And that's when it became clear to me that every single one of those characters had something they needed to come out about, mm-hmm. whether that was sexual or not. You know, Magnolia mm-hmm. had to come out about her perfectionism and her drug addiction. I mean, there, you know, yeah. it was like every, Patty had to come about her eating disorder. Like, the, and, and they all take a different trajectory on their journey. Why do you keep fucking with me? Do you really hate me that much? I love you. What do you mean you love me? Since we were 14 years old. That's why we couldn't be friends anymore, because I knew what I wanted, and I knew you didn't want it. So he, he, he and I immediately fell in love on the phone. And by the way, he's become a dear, dear friend. I love like him we're, so much. He texts I, me every single Monday after this podcast drops, because he listens to every single episode. And he gives me like specifics. Like at 11 minutes, when you said this to so-and-so, he's, he's so special. He, he such is. a special he, human. I, I, I adore him so I, much. I, I love him so much. Yeah. Um, so I wanted it to be like a mockumentary style direct to camera thing. Mm -hmm. And then he sold his life rights to a reality show. And so Nina Wass, our producer, uh, came to me and said, you have to make it a two hander. So it's different than his reality show. Who's the other hand. And I thought about it for literally 30 seconds and started laughing uncontrollably. And she's like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, we can't do it. Like, there's no possible way that we can do this. But like, this is the story I want to tell. And she said, what? I said, it's a 17 and a half year old former fat girl with an axe to grind with the world. And she's been so put upon and so bullied that she's become homicidal. And now she's willing to kill the competition. That was the first seed of it, which of course evolved. But Nina, God bless her, took up that proverbial piece of crumpled up piece of paper yeah, from the floor, right, uncrumpled right. it, and was like, "Well, let's do that." <gasps> and then I, and this has never happened to me before in my career. Like I, I don't mean to say this like it, it's never this easy. I sat in a coffee bean for six hours, and the pitch poured out of me. Wow! In a way that it felt like it was coming from another place. Like this is like the story you're of Bob. It. it used to be Bob Anderson, and then we couldn't do it. But like this is the story of Bob Anderson, who and I wrote his character and what he wanted, and it was just like oh, obviously. And, I, and by the way, because it was my first pitch, because I it was the first thing in my deal. CBS made my deal around this mm-hmm. project, right? I kind of didn't get the pressures that that involved. And so I just wrote it for me. Like I was writing, I'm like, what do I think is funny? Can I curse on this? Yes, please. Like, what do I think this is funny? Fuck you, this is for me. Like, meh, 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 whatever. And, and I made myself laugh. And then I got to Patty and kind of channeled the inner demon of my bullied teenager. Right. And also it was funny because I was able to look at my own pain and be like, oh, I was a crazy person. Like, you know, it's funny. And how funny that this disastrous 17-year-old impacts this disastrous 40 men in there. Right. And, and like, <laughs> he has no idea what he's signing up for. Poor, like, the whole pitch about, you know, halfway through, you start hearing poor Bob. He has no idea. Poor right. Bob. Poor like, Bob. Poor Bob. And, and to me, poor Bob just makes me laugh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's um, still poor Bob. A hundred percent poor Bob. Bob. Like, that's where, later. The, that's yep. where the comedy comes yep. from. And thank God for Dallas, who plays poor Bob so well. Like, so there's, well. It's so, because Bill, here's what's interesting. There's no poor Bill. Like, if you meet Bill Alverson, right. he, he is That's not right. an underdog. Nope. There's nothing um, sad sacky about him. And there's something fun about the character of Bob being a little bit of a sad sack that, like, makes you love him more. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because and, it's more empathetic, right? right. You have and more if sympathy we had done him. Bob as Bill exactly, it wouldn't have worked that way. So you go in with a pitch to CBS Studios. For the show. For the show. Yeah, I pitched it to CBS Studios. And, you know, everyone across the board was like... Um, this is crazy. I can't and even imagine what that totally pitch was like. To- I want to go back and be in that room. It's so It was the most fun I've ever had pitching that show because I love pitching. It's one of those things when you're a writer, nobody tells you you have to also know how to be a performer. That's right. And I briefly was a performer in high, in high school. I, I loved it, but I kind of didn't want the way that I looked to be the reason, like to determine whether or not I made money. And so I, I wasn't secure enough in myself to be able to do that. So I thought writing was a better idea. Yeah. Um, and uh but i miss it 
And so pitching is the only time I get to do that. That's and so I love it because it's, it's so a- good that you go into it with that mentality, though, because so many writers go into it with the like, oh, I have a pitch. No, it's the most fun thing ever, because I also think as much as I always want to sell everything I pitch, mm-hmm. the it's such a joy to go into a room full of like their captive audience. They're, it, right. they're sitting across the table from you. And, and they want to like it, I would say. For 30 right? minutes, you get to cal- tell them a campfire story, plus a magic show, plus a seduction. And like, these are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> like, it's so fun. So great. It's so because when it works, it's the greatest thing ever because you just get the reaction. You get the immediate feedback, which right. on a television show, you don't. I mean, you do want on the set, but it's not the same. Yeah, no, no. I know. Yeah. It's so much fun. It just brings me back to when I was a theater geek, you know? And so I went in and I pitched them this crazy thing. And they were like, let's take it out to a few places. Nobody wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They were like, we we don't understand the tone of the show. Because the tone is bananas. Yeah. And uh, they let me write it on spec under my deal. God bless them. Wow. So again, Wait, I, I got didn't to know be this like, part. I got to be like, fuck you. This is for me. I'm writing it under spec. Right. spec. I just like, I wrote it in 10 days and thought I wrote what I thought was funny. And it went through many iterations, but the first draft took me 10 days and it was a half hour. And then some agent in my agency, whose name I don't remember, honestly, because he said it to my agent in a staff meeting, right. suggested, you know, what if we pitch this to the CW? And I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it because after working at an agency for years, I would like to think that I'm somewhat business-minded. Right. Didn't occur to me. I'm like, great, let's do that. And so we did it. They were lovely. They let me cast it the way that I wanted to. They let me pick the director. that I, Like, they kind of let me talk them into whatever I wanted How to How did you them. find Debbie? Debbie Ryan. Her agent called me and was like, she's perfect for it. And I was like, are you sure? She's like, she's perfect for it. Just let her come in. And so she did. And she walked in the room and she was like, hi, I'm Debbie. And I heard the voice and I was like, that's the voice of her. <laughs> like, I just... You just knew. I just knew. Yeah. My name is Patty. <laughs> High school was a nightmare. Patty Patty's huge. While my classmates were out losing their virginity, I was at home stuffing another hole. It smells like bacon. <laughs> Every day I wondered, how much more of this can I take? Then it hit me. Now what? And then the other thing that happened was when we were, you know, we tested a few people for it. And on that day, on the day of her test, she was like, I just want to make sure that we're not making fun of eating disorders. And which, you know, I spoke to Debbie last last week and she was like, which of course is not the thing you say to your potential boss when you're trying to get a job. Like she was really... right. But I'm that way, too. Like, I say inappropriate shit all the time. Yeah. And I was like, no, it's super not. It comes from my experience. And then we ended up talking about our shared history of disordered eating and body obsession. And we both cried, like, 10 minutes before the test. Before the test. Oh, wow. And it was, like, magical. And and by the way, there were also, like, 15 people in the room. Yeah. So we're both crying and sharing. And it was this really intense kind of thing. And for someone to be so young and have that depth of connection to that character, I was like, oh, this... Because I don't know... I, I don't know that someone as young as a Patty-aged character could pull off the thing that Debbie pulls off without having lived through and understanding those feelings. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, I definitely think that there's a, a purity to who she is as a person. Yeah. And I think that really plays into the character yeah. so well. She, she she And she's willing to go there, too. Like yeah. She doesn't oh, say, like, sure. I'm not going to talk about and that. And you know what else is so remarkable about her is um, she's not afraid to, to look ugly. No. Which most actresses that age are terrified to make the the ugly face or to have the camera right here. And she has no, there is no, whatever insecurity she has about the way she looks or feels, when the camera's rolling, you don't see that. And she's so brave. Brave Brave is the perfect word. She's so brave. It's really remarkable. I'm so grateful for it. Um, So we made it for the CW. So we made it for the CW and the... (laughs) The only thing that the CW did wrong was they didn't make me make it a CW show, which right. is, of course, the thing that they did right, right? I exactly. Mean, but they didn't end up deciding to pick it up. But we got this phone call that was like, we think that you could sell this somewhere else. We're telling you before you hear that it didn't get picked up because we want you to have as much of a head start. Like, we believe in this show. We just can't do it on our network. They couldn't have been more lovely and supportive. The other like- thing that has never happened is I actually walked into a pitch into the CW and the head of the CW said to me, I love that show so much, but I realized the best thing that I could possibly do for it was let it go. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were made. I mean, it was the most supportive pass ever. That does not happen. It doesn't happen. Because they bear hug everything. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they were really beautiful to me. Like, they let me basically so that shoot was, proof I of concept. I feel like that was like a Tuesday that it that we heard that it was not going to go at the CW because I feel like then Thursday or Friday, I had gotten word that Netflix... It was three weeks. It was three it weeks? It was weeks. Oh my God, it seemed like two days later. It was weeks. So so here's the magic part, right? Which I should share, right? A hundred percent. So... But I also want to talk a little bit about your spirituality and how much that plays into not only your life, but your work and also sure. how you lead because I think that's a big part of who you are. Yeah. Um, so what... What it ha- you know, my, my husband is a channeler, and so that's a whole thing. He's also a writer. He writes on the show, but he's a channeler. And um, so sometimes things come through, mantras, homework, whatever. And so when, I was sh- when we were in Atlanta shooting the pilot for Insatiable, what had come through as a mantra, believe in believing the impossible is possible, that I was saying for three or seven minutes every day, depending on how much time I had. And the experience of shooting the pilot was so fun and magical that I was not ready for it to be over. And so uh, we were all on this text chain, um, the cast and me and, and the director. And I sent out this text on my way home. Like I was sitting in the airport that said, okay, you guys, I know that this is going to sound crazy, but just humor me for seven minutes every day. Please say this mantra out loud for seven minutes every day. And when you're done, speak out loud the thing that you want to come into being, which is for Insatiable to get picked up to series. And I never said for Insatiable to get picked up to series at the CW, by the way, which is really interesting. Interesting, yeah. Um, are you in? And I expected like maybe one person to thumbs up me or something. And it was like my phone started shitting glitter. Like it was like unicorns <laughs> and rainbows. Like everybody was in. Like everybody was super excited to do this. And then it became the thing that kind of held us together. Yep. Every day someone would check in. I did my I still use today. it, by the way. You do? That's yep. so amazing. I still use it. And so it's a very powerful manifestation mantra. It's yes. incredible. And it's more powerful by the water, by the way, as it turns out. Um, I would go to the beach every day and say seven minutes of believe in believing the impossible is possible. And then say insatiable gets picked up to series. I would actually say I would like to water the seed that's already been planted that Insatiable gets picked up to series because one of my spiritual advisors said that if you keep digging at the same thing, it's kind of like planting a seed and digging it up every day. You have, oh. You're not trusting that it's, it's actually something. That it's something that's going to happen. So, yeah. so it, you have to look at the mantra as watering that seed. Amazing. So I did that. Um, and then the CW passed. And my first reaction, of course, I crumbled and was devastated. But the first reaction was confusion because I really believe that magic is real and that it was going to work. So first I was confused. I really thought it was going to happen. Then I was devastated. And then I realized I've ruined magic for this entire group of people because I told them that if they did this, it would get picked up. And now I look like, A, it, my ego, sure, like I look stupid, but also like I don't want to ruin magic for people. Like I don't want them to lose that because I really believe it's real. And I believe that part of my like calling on the planet is to like accessibly let people know that it's real and right. in a way that's not off-putting and, you know, whatever. Um, and so I sent out a text that said, look, I know it's really easy to believe when things go your way, but this is where we double down. Let's say it twice a day. And if it works and we get picked up somewhere else, I'm going to tattoo it on my body. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people did it. They, yep. they did it no, twice did. a day and uh, we doubled down and, and like it was the weirdest limbo in the world. Like, and I also know that when you say to people, well, the CW passed, but we're hoping it's going to get picked up somewhere else, you sound delusional. Like people give you the pity look like, oh, you're so well, because sweet, that, you're holding that on happens, to. That happens so often, right? Where you're like, this is not going to work. But then your agent's like, you know, maybe the studio will shop it around and it never winds it up actually happening. I want to say never because now it does. But like, it's rare. It's super it's rare. It's very rare. So, and I could feel the pity when I would say that to people. Right. And I was just like, okay, but I'm just going to keep <laughs> at it, right? And, of course, I, I had my cell phone. Like, I slept with it. Like, I, the one day where I was like, whatever. Like, it was on my couch. I wasn't paying attention to it. And the office phone rang, and I picked it up. And Nina West was like, where the fuck have you been? I've been calling you for an hour. I'm like, what do you mean? And I picked up my phone, like, 12 missed calls from Nina. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, uh, Netflix is picking up the show. And I lost my mind. I bet. I I'm lo- getting I'm like, teary. Magic is real. <laughs> like, I, I, like, I, I mean, I said crazy things because I was so excited. I was like, I'm a witch. Like, fuck you. Like, I was so excited. And, uh, and then, of course, once the news hit all the agencies, like, the phone started shitting glitter again. It was yeah. like, oh, my God, yeah. magic is real. Like, like, we did it. It was so beautiful. And 
you know, the best call I got, honestly, was from Dallas. He called me and said, I hated you so much for seven minutes every day. I was so resentful that I had to do this, but I did it anyway. He's like, why can't the possible be possible? Like, how about the possible is possible? Like, how about we just get the show picked up at the CW? Like, seriously, the impossible? And then he's like, and then Netflix, like, the fucking impossible is possible. I'm so in. Like, I'm so in. Like, he was so, he was so excited. And and it's true. And then that kind of set the template for us moving forward that we all It was the best non-pickup I've ever gotten in my life. Well, I called it the touchdown pass. It's like a pass, but it's a touchdown pass. Yeah, exactly. It's like the best. It was great. And, you know, by the way, not to say that the CW couldn't have been more supportive and they were amazing. No, and, and to the very a, end. And, and even letting it go, that was a huge deal, Lauren. No, I but even after they let it go, like I had debriefs with all the executives that were like, we have to go out and celebrate Insatiable getting picked up. Like they, yeah. they could not yeah. have been more loving about right. it. So I, I mean, like forever indebted to that level of support and care. And also there are things that we could do on Netflix that we couldn't have possibly done on. Yeah the CW and it would have been a different thing. And also the time, like it would have been 22 there. And oh, that's, that's a different painful. thing. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, so that was amazing. And then, you know, frankly, we did it again when we launched it out into the world. Right. I had a whole, like at the premiere last year, I had the whole audience chant it with me. I remember. And I fully believe that that changed the energy around the show when we launched it into the world. I hate when I don't get enough sleep. Missing out on crucial hours can affect your cognitive functions like learning and decision making. But there's no better feeling than waking up and feeling rested, which is where Calm comes in. Calm is the number one app for sleep. It offers a whole library of programs designed to help you get the rest your body and brain needs. From soundscapes to sleep stories narrated by soothing voices, the app provides numerous soothing sounds to help you drift off to sleep. So, If you want to seize the day and sleep the night, you should try Calm. And right now, Sorry Not Sorry listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sorry. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash sorry. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash sorry. With the holidays approaching, you want to be able to take photos and feel confident with your smile. So I want to let you in on a little secret. I use clear aligners from Candid. Candid's aligners help straighten your teeth faster than traditional wire braces, and the treatment only takes six months on average. Basically, an experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. They show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. The aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. And they ship the aligners right to you so you don't have to go into an office. Also, it costs 65% less than braces. And the best part? With each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, who brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. I am going to have a photo-ready smile by the holidays, and you can too. Go to CandidCO dot com slash sorry and use code sorry to get seventy five dollars off. That's candid co dot com slash sorry code sorry for seventy five dollars off. Candidcode dot com slash sorry code sorry. Did you think there's part of you in every one of the characters on Insatiable? I think there is. I mean there there are a couple that are harder for me to find a little bit like Brick, there's not as much of right. in brick. Right. Um, but but I will say that the part of me that's in brick is more like my son. Right. You know, and, and on some level, I the second I met Michael Provost, I felt weirdly maternal toward him in yeah, a way that like, like I just wanted to like yeah. take care of him. And some of it is that he has very similar coloring to my son and the same haircut and like they they're they have like a, sweet, an essence. Yeah. Yeah. Um but on the pilot I told 
Michael, like, if you need a mama bear on set, like, I am totally here for you. Because he's very close with his mom, too. Yeah. Like, I have even reached out to his mother on social media and told her she did a good job. Because, oh. like, I'm so moved by what a good person he's he is. He's a really good person. Like, who looks like that and is that good of a person? Like, no, he's so, I, I mean, he's such a sweetheart. Like, he's a mensch. We had a death of a, of a mom on the on the yeah. set. Um, one of our actors' mom passed away. And he made them lasagna. I and know. <laughs> homemade lasagna and homemade brought it over. And brought it over. It's such so a sweet, sweet. boy. Um, so so, so in terms of that character, he it's more about the like when I write it, I think about my but otherwise, yes, I think that all the characters have aspects of me in them. The parts of me that either are a shadow self part or a part that I felt shame about that doesn't there's no need for shame and over the course of my own journey has come to light. What new themes do you hope to explore in your future writing? I want to explore magic more. I'm dying. I mean, there's several things that I'm like. Maybe really? you should write the Charmed movie. Sure, sure. You could explore all of that. Yeah, um, that would be great. Tell somebody. Um. <laughs> I will. C- CBS Studios. Yeah. Uh, yeah, something magical or otherworldly would be really good. Um, I am- because the the themes that I think that you innately just come out in your writing yeah. are the antihero. Yeah. Is, seems to be yeah. prominent. The fragility of in, just insecurity and what that means in someone's everyday mm-hmm. world. Love. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? What like, does that unconditional love look like? Family. What yeah. does that look like? Right. Right. I, that's interesting. Yeah. It's not, you don't have a conventional view of it, but it's definitely, there is very strong themes of the family unit. In- yeah, because I know, because I'm an only, so I had to kind of find and pull in my own right. chosen family. Yeah. Uh, so what else, what else do you think is important? That Identity, across? for sure. Identity. Um, sexuality and gender comes through a lot. You know, um, I have a, I'm working on a project with Stephen Sater and Mark Webb for, Amazon that's inspired by Twelfth Night that has a non-binary lead, um, which explores some of that stuff, which is so fun and interesting. And also, like, just really makes us explore ourselves in a way that we hadn't anticipated. Right. You know? Right. It's really interesting. Um, So I'm very interested in, you know, it's about the multitudes and the multitudes. Yeah. Right. Uh, And the idea of female power. Like, I'm very interested in the idea of female power and where does that come from. The goddess and how does that translate into our everyday life? Well, and and if you think about, like, the mystical stories of female strength, it all comes from uh, a goddess place, but also a sense of service. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that is, if we could figure out how to lead through service as women yeah. rather than this like projected masculinity that I think we're so conditioned to see in our leaders because most of them are dudes, mm-hmm. I think that we could change the world if given inter- the opportunity. It's interesting for me, and this may be in a similar line, but it's employing the mama bear instead of the daddy. Yeah. Because I think there's something profound about that open-hearted like – caretaking intuitiveness that it is service obviously there's no greater service than being a mom but and i don't mean that in a way that is disparaging a woman who she's not to have children i just think that the maternal it's the divine mother it's it, children are not there's the divine motherhood yes. thing that happens yes that's nurturing and that's not to say men can't be nurturers my husband is like arguably more nurturing than i am because he has that he's a carrier of the divine feminine and not all men are right you know? um but I think it's that. It's like if we can lead with the d- the divine feminine forward. And even if you look at um, media, like TV and movies that have come out in the last five years, there's been a resurgence of the divine feminine in a way that is market if you're looking for it. Like even the idea that we now have like Captain Marvel as a female yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Um, and there are more stories of female power that where the power is enacted in a different way, as opposed to like you're saying, the traditional we have to be masculine to be women in power, that we employ our what is traditionally seen as feminine. And I think even all the, of that stuff is getting blurred too. So like, how do you even describe what masculine and feminine is when people are out there saying gender is over? I love it. I do too. I love it so much. 
I do too. I think it's really freeing. It's so freeing. And to be able to raise kids in this time where you're able to look at them and paint your son's toenails oh, and yeah. hand and have My it. My son not, has a pink wall. Yeah. I mean, it's just liberating to parent in this time and to not have to set those boundaries. Right to really allow them to flourish. And it's going to be very interesting to ha- see what happens to our, to the generation of kids that we're, right. that we're raising. Right. We try to be warriors of the light. And I love the idea that a warrior can be male, female, or non-binary. Like it can be anything. It's just a show of strength and um, commitment, really. You are strong and you're amazing. Thank you. And you're brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for sitting down with me. And thank you for the opportunity to play this character that I love. Oh, my God. Thank you. So much. I love Coralie Armstrong so much. I I get so much from her that enables me to be a a better person, really. Really? Yeah, because there's something incredibly... To be able to play someone that is very different than who I am and to explore different... You know, you have to realize... Growing up in this industry, especially mm-hmm. in the time that I did, to be in this industry at in my twenties, in the nineties, a lot of that meant being naked, being sexy, mm. uh, being um, objectified, mm-hmm. and so to be able to play this part that is almost like a like a true character, mm-hmm. like you could have hired a character actress for this 100%. for this for this role, but to be able to let go of that that stigma that I sort of put on myself about mm-hmm. my own identity mm-hmm. and the way I looked and being able to grow into my forties playing this character that was not about that, but could, I could still take risks and I could be funny oh and God. I could be different so and I could be other was such a gift to be able to let go of a certain amount of, um, expectation of looking a certain way and not aging and all of that. So okay, but also you look great in the show. Like that's well, thank you. you know it's good I mean? lighting. <laughs> it's really good lighting. <laughs> beauty light. I used uh, to always say to Walt, "Thank you for my beauty light." Yeah. But yes, it's been such a gift. And so often you hear people say to you, "You know, past forty, you're not going to have a career, so save your money." And I feel like this has been the best time in my career because I enjoy playing this character so much. Well, we love having you. It's, I mean, it, it brings so much to the part. And so many of the things that are funny are just things that come out of your mouth, which is great. I love your ability to do that. Faith. There's magic in that word. Whether it's faith in your God, in an outcome yet to be determined, or in the people around you, the simple act of belief is life-affirming and life-changing. And this is why we need to have faith in women, in the leadership of women, in the belief that women can and must lead in business, in politics, in creative industries. The simple existence of that faith and the actions which true faith demand of us will empower women, change industries, and move our culture forward. When we were shooting Insatiable, and after we were done, and we were praying that we'd get picked up, Lauren Gussis had a mantra that she gave all of us. Believe in believing. The impossible is possible. It wasn't all that long ago that the very idea of a major production being led by women was beyond belief, and that that show would be getting a second season? Ugh, no, it was impossible. But, to borrow a phrase, nevertheless, we persisted. Women and our allies believed in belief that when there was nothing else to believe in, the belief itself would make a difference. That belief demanded hard work and hard conversations and constant agitation for change. And now, my industry is changing. Insatiable's second season is airing right now. Women-led productions are exploding. And this is true everywhere else, in business, in politics, in every corner of our society. Hell, I mean, Pierce Brosnan even said the next James Bond should be a woman. What used to be impossible is now not only possible, it is real. There is magic in believing. But only if we act, 
on our beliefs. As Glenda the Good Witch put it in The Wizard of Oz, you had the power all along, my dear. We have the power. We've always had the power. And if in our belief in the magic of our faith in one another, we keep clicking our heels together, we'll get home. I believe in you. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.